Uh, the, the scripture today comes from Romans chapter 1, verse 11 through 17. Again, Romans 1, 11 through 17. And this is Paul. Uh, the, the, my Bible has this title, this caption, Paul's longing to visit Rome. Again, Romans 1, 11 through 17. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. There was a kindergarten teacher that was uh, giving her class the opportunity to have a show and tell. Do you remember this when you were young? I do. It was awesome. You'd get something you were so proud of or something you really liked, something that was special or whatever. Well, this particular day, the, uh, the teacher decided to uh, ask them to bring something to represent their religion. Obviously, uh, this wasn't a very recent time because I don't think they would do that anymore. Well, the first boy got up in front of the class and he said, my name is Benjamin and I'm Jewish and this is the Star of David. Second child was a girl and she stood up in front of the class and she said, my name is Mary. I'm Catholic and this is the crucifix. The third child got up in front of the class and he said, my name is Menno, and I'm a Mennonite, and this is a casserole. <laughs> On the surface, that may sound funny because it may represent something of the value of what we have come to know in community and, and certainly in our congregation well-known for, for many good cooks. But um, it's really something more than that. It really raises this question about what does symbolize, what, what is the core of our faith? And uh, this, this passage, in fact, all of Romans, I'll say more about that, um, really represents the original gospel project. We talk about the gospel project as, and we're, we're, Cheryl's mentioned to me this morning, you know, we're kind of coming up on the end. It's been a three-year journey and we've, we've enjoyed the materials and we've enjoyed the, the themes. Um, and much of that centers on Paul in Romans. And we need a clearer understanding and a confirmation. Paul was dealing with many challenges in the churches. And he was actually writing to specific issues and concerns in each of the different church settings that he was writing to. His letter to the Christians in Rome was 
a very special book. William MacDonald tells us that, quote, Romans has always stood at the head of Paul's letters, and rightly so. It is certainly one of the most important books of all of the New Testament because it contains the most complete discussion of Christian beliefs in the whole Bible. Now, the church was having an incredible impact in Rome and in the Roman Empire and continued to as different leaders throughout the Roman Empire's history turned to Romans as one of the cornerstone texts that brought them to faith in Christ and brought them to being, instead of a, a, a critic and instead of someone to, uh, to actually uh, crucify the Christians, to go from that to the point where they actually mandated that everybody in the Roman Empire would need to be Christians. So the issue was that you had this huge reversal and different ones of those leaders, like Augustine, uh, came to a saving grace because of Romans. William Barclay said that the book of Romans is, has an almost unique place in God's word. With very few exceptions, he said, all of Paul's letters were written to meet an immediate need. There was some threatening situation in Corinth or Galatia or Philippi or Thessalonica. In almost all of the other places, Paul was dealing with some immediate trouble, some pressing situation, some current error, or some threatening danger which was menacing the local church. And Paul wrote letters to meet those needs. Why did he write a letter to Romans when he had never been there? And why is it so personal? One reason was to request their prayers and we'll see this reason when we get into the text today. But Paul also wrote this letter because he had a compelling desire to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world. We remember this because we know that Paul was the one who clearly understood and he clearly stated throughout Romans that, that God intended his saving grace for everyone in the world. It wasn't just for the Jewish people. That's where he started with Abraham. But when he even gave what we call the Abrahamic covenant, he, it was a covenant basically for the, the message of a relationship with God, the creator, to go out to all the earth, everywhere. And we look at Paul's situation in writing this, his tension with Rome, his deep desire to go and visit with the people there for the sole purpose of extending God's kingdom, for strengthening them, for encouraging them. That's why he wrote this letter. He was very sincere in saying, I want to come to you. I do want to visit you. At the end of, of the, the letter in Romans 15, 23 and 24, it says, but now no longer having a place in these parts and having a great desire these many years to come to you uh, whenever I journey to Spain, I shall come to you. For I hoped to see you on my journey and to be helped on my way there by you if first I may enjoy your company for a while. Paul was willing to witness for Jesus everywhere he possibly could. 
He wanted to be able to extend God's kingdom. He wanted the message that it is for everyone and not simply an exclusive group of people. There were some other, and you remember Paul's transformation. This is quite a swing from going to persecuting the Christians to being the largest advocate for God's grace to everyone. Let's look at, and Doug mentioned today, being Anabaptist Sunday. Now, we don't necessarily consider Martin Luther to be an Anabaptist, but he was the one who started the Reformation. And the start of that Reformation meant that he put himself, like Jesus did with the, the Pharisees and the rulers and leaders of the, of the synagogue back then, Luther also put himself at odds with the, with the Catholic Church that by now was centuries well established. He put himself at risk of that because of his deep conviction from reading scripture that there was something missing in the church. And he didn't have any intention when he put these 95 reforms that he was calling the Catholic Church to, he didn't do that for the sake of leaving the church. But his conviction about who Christ was and why he came and about the grace of Jesus Christ put him at a place that was at odds. And it was an untenable relationship with the Catholic Church. Uh, it simply couldn't go on. And so he was really the first reformer that dared to step into that trouble. And in doing so, could be could very much identify with Christ who also went against all of the stuff that's out there. Now, we're challenged by that. Martin Luther's life entirely changed when he saw the grace and mercy of God, free of charge in the righteousness of Christ. In fact, uh, when... Luther began reading about the righteousness of God, which we have in this passage today. It was transforming for him. And he knew that it couldn't just be about going to confession and becoming a monk and studying and paying for your indulgences. In other words, giving a recompense to the church monetarily or in other ways, giving something profitable to the church and paying for it because of... of sins that there had to be more than that and so he pursued that and when he did that he began to understand more and more that if God was going to be faithful in his laws and rules and ordinances and if he was going to be unwavering that he was also going to keep unwaveringly his promises that we have in scripture, his promises that he sent his son Jesus to fulfill the justice and wrath of God on the cross. In Romans 3.23, it says, there is no difference because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God publicly displayed as an atonement seat through faith in his blood. God did this to demonstrate his justice. The gospel reveals 
a completely different way of righteousness. God's grace and mercy wasn't something Luther needed to go and get. It was already there. Now, earlier I used the term balance. Today, many believers and even churches have moved to a different pendulum swing. And you could say we have enough going on with all the pendemic and how life has changed and everything else, but there's something far bigger than a pandemic going on right now. The pendulum swing is towards a tolerance, a grace-only or a convenience-only understanding of God. The popular God of America is the tolerant God who demands nothing, allows everything. He loves everyone as they are. This is not the holy and righteous God of the Bible, so they don't take God seriously. And on the one hand, I I would say, yes, God loves every one of us where we're at, but the whole purpose of his kingdom is to move us from that to something else. And these are fighting words. These are swear words in our culture. You can't say that there's anything wrong with this because that it means it's criticizing it. You know, you're isolating it out as being different. So everything's got to be okay so that nobody's not okay. And we carry that in all kinds of ways into our thinking and into our practices. God just wants us to be happy. We, we can't have any restrictions. And the primary purpose of God is to keep the world ticking, if you will. If you have your Bibles, turn to John 14. Let's go back to the same conversation we read, uh, we've read about in the in the past in John 14 Jesus had told his disciples he was leaving and that they knew the way to where he was going and Thomas said actually we don't know where you're going and uh, so how can we know the way and it was then that Jesus made the claim I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me well right after that Philip much like many of us would be Philip chimes in on the conversation and says Lord Show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Now, if Thomas was a skeptic, Philip was a pragmatic. Show me the money, Philip wanted to see the goods. Whether Jesus rolled his eyes, we don't really know, but he probably did. But the response he gave Philip revealed that to know Jesus is to know God, and the search for God, truth, and reality ends up with Jesus. Jesus answered this way to Philip. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak by my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the fathers in me, or, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Now, these are two questions that Jesus poses in this passage. Don't you know me? And don't you believe in me? I say this age of tolerance, of 
a cultural humanism is rampant. And it is coming out in a new term called Christian atheism. Knowing and believing in God are, are two phrases that are blatantly rejected in traditional atheism. But there's a new atheism around today where knowing and believing are a little more, a little more subjective. This Christian atheism, which indeed sounds like a contradiction, uh, is, uh, is the new concept. Atheism is the deliberate and definite dogmatic denial of the existence of God. Christian atheism is something different. It accepts that there's a God in a general kind of way, but rejects the supernatural claims of Jesus. It's traditional atheism with a spoonful of Christianity. Christian atheism is a form of cultural Christianity that draws its beliefs and practices from the life and teachings of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels, but rejects the supernatural claims. In some ways, it's believing in God, but living as if he doesn't exist. Now, this is not a good ending by following that form of it. Because ultimately what it does is it leads us to the place where there are, no, there are no restrictions. There is no ability to say that anything is bad or evil or wrong. It's all good. You heard that enough times to practically vomit. No, it's not all good. But we want what we want. And so we turn God into something we want God to be. And the balance of swinging in that direction essentially will leave churches empty, will leave any purpose or mission for the church empty. And we have to be aware of it. And we also have to be aware of what other things going on around us pull us into that sort of thinking. I've heard a lot of anger towards God in this time of pandemic. I've also heard a lot of people sincerely turning to the Lord in a different way. And why that variance? If I don't believe in God, why would I be angry with God? If I don't believe in the saving work of Christ and the, the fact that God made himself in the form of man to come and say to us how much he loves us, if he didn't do that, what kind of a caring God would our God be? I just want to say, the church has got to stand up and think this through and be ready to respond to it. Because there are many, many churches around and there are many other leaders around who are starting to and some inching, some foot at a time, some a yard at a time through Facebook and many other methods actually revealing their true thought that they don't really believe Jesus was the son of God or divine, just a really good person. And that the Bible itself is being overturned as having any authority or guidance. To that, we say we will not go that direction. We are going to stand on what we understand all through scripture is this call that God loves us and cares for us enough to invest 
himself so deeply and for the purpose of us to open our eyes and see a world that is different and a kingdom that is different from the one of this world. Many Christians over the last year have spent more time thinking about what will go wrong rather than how God is working to bring a redemptive return to faith in him. Now, Paul addressed this dilemma a little bit and this, this very clear, to, to separate further and, and more clearly put this in mind, let's look at another passage in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 11. I just want to share these because I think it helps us understand the context and then we'll get back to our, our original text here. Romans 8, starting at verse 5. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So look, if you rule out God in any form of atheism, you essentially then say, this makes no sense, Paul. You're just making this up. Because we want in our own desire to be sovereign, we want what we want. And we set our minds on what the flesh desires. But then he goes on in verse 6. The mind governed by the flesh is death. The mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. That's pretty clear. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, law nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of flesh, but you are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. What does this say to us? It says, as Paul said it very well, beginning in verse one, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Look, it is very difficult for pastors to see the church go this route. And I would suggest to you that the hope and the redemption and the grace and love of Jesus Christ will only prevail as Christ directs us, guides us, that that work is going to continue. And there will be churches that die and churches that, that grow. And there will be churches who are huge and massive and yet can be felled to the ground like a tree with one or two or three moves of God and or selfish and sinful moves of, of their leaders and their members. My point is this. We're not guided 
And we're not called to be guided by those who choose to deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called to live and stand on it because we know and are convinced and we believe it and we've seen it and we've experienced it and we feel the presence of God and the spirit of God's confirmation, not in the flesh, but in the spirit. We know that God is here. Now, how many of you right now could simply say, and you don't have to raise your hand, I'm not asking for that, but how many of you right now in this moment, whether you're at home or here, can say, I feel the spirit of God in this place. I hope you can. Because God is speaking to us through Paul in a powerful way. He saw all of it. He saw all of the religious ideology that was, that was working to undermine the churches that he planted and the ones he was supporting. He saw all of that and he, he spoke against it. And we need to be able to not only speak against that which is not true, but to stay on our mission for that which is true. In verse 1 of chapter 8, Paul said, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, it, it was weakened by the flesh. Because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law would be fully met. And let's just understand, it's not something we could have done for ourselves. We could never be good enough, perfect enough, or sinless enough. So, the context of the need for this message today is that we are called to stand against the untruths or the half-truths or the three-quarter truths or against the, the empty and hollow philosophies that basically want us to be in control or lead us to be in control. We are our gods. We are gods. We don't need a God outside of ourselves. So when we turn to this passage and look at what Paul is asking for and looking for and wanting to teach, he concludes in chapter one, the passage that was read, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And he concludes by saying, the righteous will live by faith. So to trust the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and to spend three years in a gospel project, I hope, I hope that you aren't just kind of, I'm tired of this, I don't want it. I hope, I hope today at least you recognize that the gospel project was started by Paul and, and continues today and we're called to pick that up. Regardless of whether we're past this series of materials and what is 
officially called the Gospel Project. Are we ready to live the Gospel Project? So let's understand what the gospel is and go through these fairly quickly. First, the gospel of Jesus is, by Paul's own words, the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. And that was very important to Paul because and the reason he said it that way was because he didn't believe it was just for a select few. He, he believed that God's intention was for that to extend to everyone because he knows and we do too that no believing or faith is genuine if it is not lived and practiced the power of God that enables us to come to uh, saving grace God initiated this offer to us it's the power of God that brings that salvation secondly it is he describes it as The righteousness of God, which is revealed to us. The righteousness of God revealed. It was through the prophets, the miracles, the covenants, the historical events. It was through Jesus. It's through the spoken and written word of God, the Bible. The righteousness of God is something God wants us to know. Not to be more confusing and not to, you know, to to get you muddled in your thinking. He doesn't want us to do that. He wants us to have clarity. Now, that clarity is not without grace because we were offered grace. But the clarity is for us to be able to stand on and to not be ashamed of the, the work that Jesus did for us. You know, and and it, you remember the, the verse that says, if righteousness could be gained by the law, then Christ died for nothing. Don't we want to live in a way that Christ didn't die for nothing? He, he, he died for a purpose and we want to live in a way that confirms that purpose of his saving grace on the cross for us. Third, righteousness, the gospel is a righteousness that is believed in faith. And when Paul talks about the difference between the mind of the flesh and the mind of the spirit, People say, well, you know, you have to prove it to me. You have to show it to me. And then, then I'll believe. And I want to say it's many ways and many times it's just the opposite. When you believe in what the word of God tells us, it opens your eyes to actually be convinced and you, you begin to see it in a different way. So to say, well, I'll believe it when I see it. Well, first, if you see it, you will come to a greater belief and a greater trust. And the only way that we can trust in God is to take him at his word and to follow his word and follow his way of faith through Jesus Christ. So it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. It is the righteousness of God revealed and it is a righteousness that is believed in faith. There is no trusting in God without believing in him. And fourth, it is a righteousness that is lived and practiced. There, I read about John Wesley. You know, John Wesley traveled 250,000 miles on horseback. He averaged 20 miles a day for 40 years. He preached 4,000 sermons, produced 400 books, and he learned 10 languages. At age 83, he was annoyed with himself because he couldn't write more than 15 hours a day without hurting his eyes. 
a lot better than me. (laughs) At age 86, he felt ashamed because he could no longer preach more than twice a day. He complained in his diary that he had an increasing tendency to lie in bed until 5.30 in the morning before he got up to do his devotions. That is way outside my realm of understanding. Let me just tell you, the morning thing is not fun for me. Uh, It's hard enough to get up for men's breakfast at 6.30, but, you know, to get up at 5.30 and to be deep in study at 5.30. But look at the devotion of this man at 86, feeling like he's not doing enough. Oh, folks, life goes by so fast. We see the pictures of children, the loved ones, many, many years ago. And we say, where did it go? We're called. We are truly called to use the time we have. And the fifth thing to simply say is that the gospel is a righteousness that is shared. To share Jesus, the experience, the learning, the differences that it makes in our lives or has made in our lives, the love, the joy, the hope and victory it provides. That's what sharing the gospel is, is offering that to other people. Paul was consistently writing about the fact that any gospel that is worth having is worth sharing. Surely, God calls us to be faithful witnesses for this most important truth. In Acts 1.8, Jesus told the apostle, his apostles, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. He shared that because it was not to just be for my household and my closest friends, but we're called to go out. And you don't have to defend God. You don't have to be a salesman for God. All God wants you to do is be a witness. You know what a witness does? A witness simply shares what they saw, what they know, what they understand, what they've seen, and, and, and what they've experienced or you know, whatever, but they're a witness. You know, we don't have to somehow justify God to others. We are simply called to share in every, any and every situation uh, that we can. And, and we're called to set our minds on the things of the spirit, to know what it is we receive and we believe and we commit and we practice and we share. Tell you the The heroes of the Christian faith are not always those who pastor the biggest churches or write the most books or travel the world ministering to missionaries. Often the true heroes of the faith are unknown and will never be known until the day of reward. Pastor uh, Hugh Davidson said, I had a friend who went home to be with the Lord a few years back. He dropped in to see me when I was living down east. He had spent the first portion of his life as a missionary in Guyana, and when he came back to Canada, he had a ministry among the native people in Ontario. He told me he had come from a very small church in Ontario, and this church had never grown to more than 35 members. 
it was in a very rural country area, but from that church came 12 full-time missionaries, and those who remained home supported the 12 missionaries until the last person had retired from the field, and then the church folded. We, we hear that, and we wonder, well, what happened? Did they abandon the faith or somehow lose their vision? No. God had raised them up to do a job, and they did it. And it all began because they loved the Lord and treasured his word. And these people are heroes, not because their church continues and is a burgeoning 35 or 5,000 member church. They're, they're being heroes because they have supported missionaries who trained and brought the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who had never heard it and then who took it to other people that had never heard it and shared it with others and others and others. We'll never know till heaven what the ripple effect is for the things that we do for the cause of Christ. And we don't need to. I think there's power in this story because we're glorifying certain churches and certain ministries to such a high degree. And we're drawn to the places that are exciting and that do every you know, thing for us and provide all the services. And, and we, we finally uh, you know, can accommodate all kinds of things and, and I'm not, those are fine things, but they don't replace the call to share our faith and witness, be a witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ. When the church is doing that, that other stuff is all fluff, gravy. But the real main dish of the gospel of Jesus Christ is something so good that we want to share it. There's a story told of a little boy whose mother would walk him to school every morning. The boy always kissed his mother on the cheek. But there was a funny thing about his mother. Her cheek and her neck were malformed and scarred. As he grew older, he started to notice it more, and he was a little embarrassed to be with her because of how she looked. He asked her to stop walking with him to school because some of his friends made fun of her looks. One day, one of the other mothers noticed that he was pulling back away from his mom. She asked him about it. He was embarrassed and didn't want to say anything. So she said, do you know how your mom got those scars? When you were six months old, you were in a car accident. Your car started on fire. Your mother was able to get herself free rather easily, but the car had started on fire. She had to break through the back window and tear you out of the car seat in order to free you. You came out without a problem. But that's how she was burned, saving you. She didn't have to say another word. That boy gave his mother a kiss goodbye every day for the rest of grade school and proudly let him take her to the door from then on when he understood the sacrifice she had made for him. Jesus himself mentioned the concept of being unashamed as well. In Mark 8, 38, he said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his father's glory with the holy angels. I hope that we can embrace the gospel and not just 
the sermon series or the three-year series or the Sunday school lessons, I hope we can embrace the living gospel of Christ. I hope that we can be clear and be absolutely unashamed to give testimony wherever and however we can in the smallest of ways to the biggest of ways, whatever we can do to be able to share the gospel for Jesus Christ. And when we do that, it won't matter what numbers are. It won't matter. Nothing else will matter. And when we get to heaven, we will see in a clear way what the ripple effect is of the willingness to be unashamed and the willingness to testify in a day like we live in today, we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. May that be our thought, our commitment, our prayer, and our, our whole congregation's vision for how we are to function, in, especially in the day that God has given us today. Amen.